Okay, so um, oh, here, Lisa. I pulled up. Uh, I I had a. I've got a website up. Um, that that I mean, it's a it's a decent. It's not one that I that I'm gonna put on the site for references or anything, but it's just got a little summary of the book. That would be that's easy. Nahum, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this is the only mention in scripture of Nahum the Elkishite actually occurs in the first verse of his own book. <laughs> so he's not somebody that as we're reading through Kings or Chronicles we encountered. We're not, um, you know, oh, this was that Nahum, you know, it's like. Where's he at? What's, uh, he's right after Micah. Um you know, scholars have proposed a number of theories about his hometown, Elkosh, that he ref, uh, references. Um, one of the the most accepted uh, has it as a city in southern Judah that that may be the city that a city that later became known as El Shesi. Um, Elkosh, uh, it's it's E L K O S H for our pronunciation versus E L C at ESI. So it's very, very close. And it is near where the prophet Micah lived. And so um, him being, you know, we've talked about, about the prophets of the Lord having uh, sons of the prophets who were mentoring under them. And it's very possible that Micah and Nahum were, you know, were there. Well, that or, or that they may have both been I think I think we saw that uh, wasn't Micah at the time of Isaiah, and and so they may have both been involved in that ministry in some way, Um, because we have to assume that he's significant enough that he was included in the canon of the Old Testament by the rabbis, you know. So it's it's not you know it's not like somebody went out and was like, look, I found this book in that guy's house after he left, you know. It's 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 accepted and it's it's included, um, and his prophecy has to do with Nineveh, um, which would have been a significant issue for the people of Judah, uh, because they would have says they would have needed encouragement in the face of the terrifying power of the Assyrian Empire. It is, and now this is ding ding ding. This is um, there. You go. Now and now we kind of I kind of talked about this when we read Jonah. Um, you know, there is some controversy over how Jonah should be approached, whether it should be approached as a book of prophecy, which the the church typically does, or whether it was a teaching parable used by rabbis in the ancient world, which is how um, the, the Tanakh puts it. The Tanakh does not treat uh, the book of Jonah as a book of prophecy. There, no, there is not, a, I mean, there is a prophet Jonah, but it is not thought generally in, in the rabbinic world that Jonah actually got swallowed by a big fish, actually went into Nineveh, which was, I mean, you know, the veggie tales you mentioned, the whole fish slapping. I mean, they were, when you go and look at what, what the things they actually did to people, you know, skinning them alive, um, you know, just the level of torture that they, and, and the level of, of unrighteousness and how they treated people. And there is no actual record in their own record or anyone around them's record of them ever repenting of anything. So the, the general rabbinic thought is that, you know, because it was used as a teaching parable is that it may have been referencing a prophet that would have been, whose name would have been known to the students and, and 
by using in in the story the way that it's told by using Nineveh this extreme extremely evil city that the students themselves would have had no love for and showing the character of Jonah not wanting to take God's word to them and resisting that and thinking he can flee from the face of God and then ultimately showing God as powerful enough to redeem even Nineveh and then taking it back to the character of Jonah who then goes and pouts and talking about the attitude of Jonah and, and why would he not want to share God's love with even Nineveh. So there, there was a lot of teaching that was done with it. Now, was it a real prophecy that then that teaching was done with it? Sure. You know, I don't, have, I don't take issue with any of the things in it actually happening. Would I lose my faith if I found out it was just a teaching parable? No, because <laughs> it's all good. Um, but this, but Nahum. Well, that's the that's the question. Yeah, that's that's the debate. That's the debate. Did it actually happen? Did he deliver that prophecy? And is this a a true true accounting of an event? Or is it more like Psalms and Proverbs and the other wisdom writings, Ecclesiastes? Is it supposed to be, is it a story that may not be, you know, factually true, but contains truth with a capital T that we're supposed to glean from it? And, and I think that, I, personally, I'm most comfortable with not worrying about whether it actually happened or not, and focusing on what truth can we glean from it. Because there's actual practical use from that, whereas whether it factually happened or not has no bearing whatsoever on anything else related to God, as far as I'm concerned. Why, you know, why does the Christian church consider it a, 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 a prophecy? prophecy? Because a lot I don't of people know. seem to believe that it was a true story, and it has to be a true story, because of because of the very common for very long time literal approach to interpretation of everything in scripture so if it says the prophet Jonah did this then you have to believe the prophet Jonah did that well Jonah no no it's a story about him Nahum's the prophet or the, the author of the book yeah, in fact, let me let me see if I can. Um, can you say Nahum was a, a He he was from Elkosh. Oh, so that which is the city that they think may be El Sesi. Um, yeah, that that's in in uh, Judah, in the lower, the southern kingdom. Um, yeah. The, the book of Jonah starts, Now the Lord's word came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So it is told, and that's one of the things that creates that controversy, it is very much told as a story. I see. You know what? Not until you said that, and then you read it, yeah. then I'm thinking... Yeah, it does sound like somebody reading a book. Yes, <laughs> yes. Actually, but and so, so... It got a great lesson in the show. It's got amazing <laughs> lessons. It really, really does. God is powerful enough to redeem even the Ninevites. And you should not be jealous when God redeems the Ninevites. You know, because... You know what? I can relate to Jonah. Oh, yeah. Human yeah. Human side, yeah. Human side. I don't want them to have none of this. So right. They don't deserve it. Well, and that's why Jonah didn't want to take the message. You know, you go the whole story and you're thinking Jonah's afraid of the Ninevites, and then it turns out, no, Jonah knew that if they repented, God would forgive them, and Jonah didn't want that to happen. So there's all, especially in the Hebrew, there's all these different layers. You know, you've got, you've got these essentially, you know, these, these sailors, these rough-and-tumble pagan sailors who are crying out to Jonah's God 
for mercy and saying, please don't blame us for throwing him in the water. And, and they all get saved. Whereas Jonah, the prophet is pouty and hiding and gets tossed in the water. And, you know, he, he's upset when God forgives people. And so there's all of this beautiful juxtaposing of characters, like people doing everything you don't expect them to do. And, and that's one of the beautiful things about parable teaching is that it challenges you to relate to one of the characters in the story who's most like you and then to ask, would you do the same thing? And so as a parable, again, whether it's factually true or not, as a parable, it is this amazingly rich opportunity to teach and learn. But I have known people who said if they get to heaven and find out Jonah wasn't real, they will lose their faith. To which I'm saying, you do realize that you just said you're in heaven when you learned this. I know. So- <laughs> you know what? You have no idea. Not even a brand new idea of what heaven is like. Yeah. How did you lose your faith in heaven? Right. I don't and over something about. like that. It's like, it- I mean, if I found out. Forget the story. It's impossible. Yeah. It's impossible to lose your faith in heaven. But to, in it's some. Can we, can we just let that I know. What are, it's amazing. One of the things uh, a friend of mine posted about this on Facebook this week is that she 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 had read something and had never put it together quite that way. Um, but that a a lot of Christians, um, and I'm sure a lot of Jewish people also in in their study can get to a place where they are idolizing the Bible. Yeah, you have to listen when I tell you to do it. Um, So they're idolizing the Bible and generally some particular translation of it. And they're staying at that Peshat level, that first level, that literal reading level. Uh, And they can debate doctrinal ideas all day long by quoting thousands of scriptures at you without ever looking at the context of them. And we're not supposed to worship the Bible. We're supposed to worship God. And the Bible is there to reveal God to us. And how we approach the Bible is important. I mean, if we approach it, the the actual liberal approach to scripture is to approach it as, you know, a good book with some good ideas in it, maybe inspired by God, you know, but more inspired like a poet's inspired, not, you know, none of it's actually God breathed, you know, it says that, but it's saying it about itself. And the conservative approach being not a literal reading, but a serious reading. This is the word of God. I want to understand what it reveals about God. I want to understand what it teaches. And, and, you know, so a lot of times when I'm when I'm having disagreements with people about doctrinal things and I see how they're they're arguing it, I'll stop them and I'll say, I get the feeling that you are so convinced he wants to try to do this. Oh, okay. Um, that that you're so convinced that it says X that you assume all of us in this conversation know it says X, and we're either being obedient to X or disobedient by doing Y. And they'll go, well, yeah. And I say, okay, I need you to understand that after serious and intensive study of this portion of scripture, I am 100% convinced it does not say X, it says Y. And me doing Y is me being obedient to God's word as I understand it. And for you to try and convince me to do X, is to try and convince me to violate God's word and to obey you instead. I certainly hope that's not what you're trying to do. And they're like, oh, no, no, that's, uh, oh, oh, I didn't know. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, okay. And then they're like, whoa. And it, it breaks down that debate dynamic. And then they actually become curious and are like, what is it? How do you believe it says why? I've never heard that. Now, they may walk away from that conversation not believing it says why, 
And I'm going to walk away not believing it says X if I'm already convinced it says Y. But it changes from then on how they interact with people who are doing Y. They might ask some more questions about, you know, well, is this something you've studied out or are you just doing it because someone told you? Or, you know, they're, they're, but they're, they're not going to approach everyone who does Y with this idea of, oh, they're just tossing aside God's work. Um, you know, which when anytime you call someone a liberal in anything, especially, you know, in, in doctrinal ideas, that's what it's saying. It's saying, oh, you've disregarded God's word. And so, you know, I don't need Jonah to be a book of prophecy that is literally true. It doesn't actually make that claim because Jonah doesn't, you know, it's not... I, Jonah, in the year of so-and-so, was told by God to go and do this. Whereas, um, you know, this is telling us the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite, which probably means that someone wrote it for him. Like a scribe probably took down, a scribe probably took down his words. Um, but, well, you know, the reason, and the reason I bring up Jonah, because these are the, the only two books that are actually about Nineveh. Yeah. And so setting aside Jonah, let's look at what Nahum was actually for sure told by God about it uh, and, and told in such a way that the rabbis include this in the book of prophecy and, or in the collection of prophecies and, and see what he has to say. So Nahum 1, uh, starting in verse 1, it says, A revelation about Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous God and avenges. The Lord avenges and is full of wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he maintains wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan languishes and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languishes. Now, you know, and this is starting out, it really... Like, unlike most of the other prophets we're reading, this is starting out with a heavy hand and a, and a fist and a God's not letting anything go unpunished. But we have to keep in mind, this is about Nineveh. This isn't about Judah or Jerusalem or Ephraim or, or any of the, the different tribes or the lands inside of, of Israel. And we read in Micah how he was telling them that, and, and in fact, the last two, two prophets we've read, how the different people who are going to come against them because God's removing his protection, not to worry about it because their quickness and their willingness to come against them is going to lead to their destruction. You know, God's not going to destroy Israel. There will always be a remnant. But these groups that are so ready to come and, and you know, take out his vengeance they're going to be destroyed because of their willingness to jump in and do that and and it's saying you know the lord is a jealous god and avenges the lord takes vengeance on his adversaries um so when when people look oh god's you know god's angry well even in the torah portion for this week it talks about him and it was really interesting how it was worded in the in the chmash, which i've left at home, so I can't read the exact wording, but it said um, that God visits the sins on the children of his enemies to the third, third and the fourth generations, but the blessings to a thousand generations of those who love him. So it takes a lot to be God's enemy. I mean, it really, really... I mean, this is the God who, who fixed the problem of sin by coming in human form to die for us. So it's not like he's wanting to go out and, you know, it's not, not like he's so picky about those who get in that you've got to meet, you know, this giant checklist of criteria. 
No, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. I mean, he gives tons of warnings. Tons and tons. I mean, uh, hundreds of years. I know. Tons of warnings. And the time, you know, we've got the books back to back to back. But the timing of them, um, that was the, what the other thing I was going to look at is when this, you know, it, it probably somewhere between 663 and 654 B.C. Um, because it mentions the destruction of Thebes, but not its reconstruction. So they, they think it probably falls in that window of when that happened. And then in the, in the Torah 22, um, he goes over with them. I mean, you're getting ready to enter the land, and he's going over all the rules again, yeah. even the Ten Commandments. Yep. So, it makes me think. Like, I don't know how much more he could have done, so when this wrath comes down, And I I love, I don't know if you picked up on this when the voice shifted in the Torah portion, but he does that. And then he says, and you're not going to be able to do this. He says, you're going to get in there and you're going to mess it up. You know, and and now I, I kind of love the humanity of Moses in this portion because he's like, so as it turns out, I don't get to go in. Thanks to you. It was that woman you you gave me. You gave gave her to me. What were you thinking? (laughs) It wasn't. I know. And I'm like, Moses, you know it was your own temper. You know that this was on you. They made that temper come out. Mm. You provoked me. Now I don't get to go in and you do fine. God said, remind you of everything. So I will. But I know you're not going to do it. <laughs> he does. He says, and when you don't do it, yeah. God will be slow to anger, but he's going to have to kick you back out. Yeah. You know, and he says it. And, and I kind of understand because there are times with the prophetic gifting where you, you, you just know that the person isn't going to do it. Yeah. You know, you know, you're, you're sitting there and whether you're praying for them or whether you're telling them, you know, because God wants you to tell them something specific. And and just even while you're telling them, there's almost this sense of hopelessness because you know they're not going to do it. But you know that if God's having you tell them, it's because there's a bigger lesson and God's, God's you, you know, God will incorporate them not doing it. And you, and, and the, I think the thing, the thing that really impacted me the most and, and was one of the most, um, intense lessons about learning how to function with the gift of prophecy was to realize that whatever I can see, it's because God's letting me and it's still only a part of the big picture. Mm -hmm. And if he's showing it to me and it may look hopeless or it may look like why bother, then he's showing it to me so that I will pray and not so that I can judge that person as, you know, well, you're just going to screw it up. I know you are, you know. And, and so when I read that, I totally get Moses. I can imagine after 40 years, I mean, and it wasn't even just the 40 years, because you go all the way back to him learning, you know, to him as a, as a young man when he realizes these are his people and he kills that guard, and then they get mad at him, which I think is part of why when God tells him to go back, he's like, Oh, seriously? I mean, it sounds like he's all scared. You know, oh, I don't know. But I, I, knowing what we know of Moses from looking at his life, there had to be a lot of you know, part of a what if they won't hear me and another part of they don't want my help. <laughs> you know? I tried to help them and they didn't want anything to do with it. And, and you know, so you see that come out and it is, it's just very... But he was, but he was right. They got in and they didn't do it, and they screwed it up, and they had to get kicked out. And yet, you know, he's complaining because he's not going to get to go in. And then someone pointed out to me at one point that um, when Yeshua is on the mount and he's talking to the two people, one of them is Moses. So he he did get to be in the land, just not in his body before his. Time to go to the Lord. And so, yeah, yeah, whatever, 
That's right. That's right. So, so the Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, which makes me think of the book of Job. Yeah. You know, it's called the whirlwind speech at the end where God comes in and says, how dare you question me? Who do you think I am? Who do you think created these things and, and put the Leviathan in the water? And, and you know, how, how dare you, one of my creations, challenge me? I'm like, you say, where were you? Yeah, where were you when I did? Yes, yes, it's awesome. It's like, you know, and yet there's a gentleness to it also where he's saying, I think that was just to get him to think. Think about who you're talking to and what you're Yeah. Saying. Who do you, you think you are? You know, did I ask you how to hang the movie right. there? And right. Things, you know, were you around for me to consult? I right. Think about it for a minute. And, and that, is, that, is, that is at the essence of, of when it talks in the Bible and, and the Jewish understanding of God testing people. It's not, it's not a... You know, I'm going to trip you up test. It's a, are you going to go through this well? You know enough. If something's happening to you, you know enough to go through it well. If you don't go through it well, then you are going to learn lessons that will help you go through it well the next time. And there have been lots of things in my life that that have, I, as I look back, and even at the time I knew I was not going through them well, and then I realized that all of the, the training time that came after that, you know, that idea of no discipline is pleasant at the time, God wasn't punishing me for not doing well on the test. We were having a crash course review so that I knew those things before I got to when I needed them. That test was for me. God knew what I was going to do and not do. But when I was there not doing it and realizing, oh, I'm not going through this well, it I... Every single time something came later that I needed to go through it well. So God was getting me ready. And the, the test kind of got me on the team. Oh, we're going to do this now. Okay. And, and then he would get me ready. And so that was a whole bunch of the not asking why. Why am I doing this? Because clearly I need to develop these skills or this heart set or this mindset or this ability because I'm going to need it. You know, God doesn't have us go running around learning a bunch of stuff we're not going to need. So the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan languishes and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languishes. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken apart by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. So even at the end of all of that, no, no, good job. Perfect timing there. Even at the end of all of that, there is this reminder. But if you're taking refuge in him, it's you're going to be fine. He's got you. So, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a full end of her place and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a full end. Affliction won't rise up the second time. For entangled like thorns and drunken as with their drink, they are consumed utterly like dry stubble. There is one gone out of you who devises evil against the Lord, who counsels wickedness. The Lord says, though they be in full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut down and he shall pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break his yoke from off you and I will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has commanded concerning you, no more descendants will bear your name. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the engraved image and the molten image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, 
who publishes peace. So most people know that verse, but probably don't know that it comes in the middle of all of this Nahum prophecy against Nineveh. You know, behold on the mountain the feet of him who brings good news. Yeah, and that's probably all that's where they stop. Publishes peace, that's right. Keep your feast, Judah. Perform your vows, for the wicked one will no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Where was Nineveh now? Um, Nineveh was in the Assyrian. Um, let's see. Do, do, do. Where it's talking? He yeah. He's in. He's in a, a Assyria. That's not gonna. This is not giving me. Um, yeah, and it was by, I'm going to, I'm looking up where is Nineveh, I'm gonna, I know it's going to be, um, it is modern day Iraq. Is it Nineveh? Get out of here. Nineveh, Assyria, Babylonia and Assyria, the oldest, most populous city of the ancient Assyrian empire, situated on the east bank of the Tigris River and encircled by the modern city of Mosul, Iraq. And then it was two prophets that went to Nineveh. Well, Jonah and Nineveh. Yeah. Yeah, Jonah, I'm sorry, Jonah and Nahum. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the thing. Even if Jonah didn't actually go there, if that was a teaching prophecy, it had to be known. You know, it may have been one of the things that they were offended by. (laughs) Oh, you think we're so bad. (laughs) Um. Yeah, it's, it was one of the largest and greatest cities in antiquity. And in the book of Jonah, it says it took, it, the city was so large that it took three days to walk from one end to the other. Yeah. Um, and it says it was settled as early as 6,000 BCE and by 3,000 had become an important religious center for worship of the goddess Ishtar. Yeah, they were, they were, cons- the, the early city and subsequent buildings were constructed on a fault line and suffered damage from a number of earthquakes. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, is it? That makes sense. Wait, is that the one who Easter Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. One, one, um, what does it say? Where'd it go? Oh, oh, apparently recent scholarship claims that the famous hanging gardens of Babylon were actually located at Nineveh and constructed under Sennacherib's reign. Um, so I'm trying to read through this. So, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting, that's why I'm saying they have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of records from Nineveh, uh, which is why one of the reasons that, you know, whether Jonah actually happened, there's no record. And you'd think that that would be something that would find its way, you know, if they all repented. Because it's interesting when you look at, um, um, Akhenaten there's there they they've readjusted some of the timeline for uh, for Egypt based on learning that there were actually two uh, pharaohs who had the same name there was Ramses one and Ramses two and Ramses two had this penchant for going around and putting his name on everything to make it look like he like you know, claiming it, making it, and making it look like he did it. Like all of this is mine. This is all mine. And and so for a long time, there were issues with dating the Exodus because they were looking at the dates of Ramses, who turns out to be Ramses the second. But when they when they kept going and they realized that the time, like the the archaeological evidence of this thing that has this guy's name on it shows it coming a long time, like hundreds of years before him. So when they shifted everything, then it put Joseph and Moses back at around the time of the first Ramses. 
And yeah, well, that's the thing. If it because if it was at the time of the first Ramses, everything lines up when they were trying when they didn't know there were two. Oh. And they were trying to put everything at the dating of the second one. Nothing added up. They're like, and that's when scholars were saying, oh, the Exodus couldn't have happened. There's just no evidence. It doesn't make any sense. So then when you go back farther, then they find what they believe is a statue of Joseph in an area outside, just outside of Egypt, like a suburb of Egypt that was probably Goshen. And, and they start finding all of this other evidence and it's interesting to me because one of the pharaohs in Egypt um, became, uh, um, he, he worshipped one god and rejected the worship of all, all of the Egyptian gods. And he ironically he's credited with being uh you know one of the first leaders to worship one god but it's around the time when you move everything back that if joseph was there at the time of that pharaoh it would make sense that he would have worshiped one god because he trusted joseph in everything and there was a lot of political upheaval at that time and as soon as he died the next pharaoh took them all back to worshiping multiple gods which would have which would explain why those israelites became hated because they brought that curse on us of that time where our pharaoh worshiped only one god and now all of our gods are mad at us um, which then takes you to Moses 400 years later when one by one God takes out their gods yeah. and shows that he really is Lord over all of them. But they would have had an understanding of that one God from that time with the, with the uh, Pharaoh that worshipped only one God. So it's just interesting to me when you adjust the timing of things, yeah. you know, how, how stuff shifts. So um, going into Nahum 2, um, it says, He who dashes in pieces has come up against you. Keep the fortress, watch the way, strengthen your waist, fortify your power mightily. For the Lord restores the excellency of Jacob and the, as the excellency of Israel. For the destroyers have destroyed them and ruined their vine branches. The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots flash with steel in the day of his preparation, and the pine spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They rush back and forth in the wide ways. Their appearance is like torches. They run like the lightnings. He summons his picked troops. They stumble on their way. They dash to its wall, and, to protective, and the protective shield is put in place. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is decreed. She is uncovered. She is carried away. And her servants moan as with the voice of doves beating on their breasts. But Nineveh has been from of old like a pool of water, yet they flee away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one looks back. Take the plunder of silver, take the plunder of gold, for there is no end of the store, the glory of all goodly furniture. She is empty, void, and waste. The heart melts, the knees knock together, their bodies and faces have grown pale. Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion and the lioness walked, the lion's cubs, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs and strangled for his lioness, or lionesses and filled his caves with the kill and his dens with prey. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke and the sword will devour your young lions and I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. Yeah, you know, People talk about really wanting to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You do not want to hear, behold, I am against you. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> you know, I, I would love to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, but I am so very glad that I do not have to stand before God and hear, behold, I am against you. These are really short. Yes, they are, I know. So Nahum 3, 
Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey doesn't depart. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of wheels, prancing horses and bounding chariots, the horsemen mounting and the flashing sword, the glittering spear and a multitude of slain, and a great heap of corpses, and there is no end of the bodies. They stumble on their... Well, if you think about a city that takes three days to walk across. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They stumble on their bodies because of the multitude of the prostitution of the alluring prostitute, the mistress of witchcraft who sells nations through her prostitution and families through her witchcraft. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will throw abominable filth on you and make you vile and will set you a spectacle. It will happen that all those who look at you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will mourn for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Noamon? who is situated among the rivers, who had the waters around her, whose rampart was the sea and her wall was of the sea. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were her helpers. Yet she, yet was she carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the head of all the streets, and they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains." You also will be drunken. You will be hidden. You also will seek a stronghold because of the enemy. All your fortresses will be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops among you are women. The gates of your land are set wide open to your enemies. The fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your fortresses. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make the brick kilns strong. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the grasshopper. Multiply like grasshoppers. Multiply like the locust. You have increased your merchants more than the stars of the skies. Are you better than no... Oh, I I put that twice. Whoops. And next one. Oh, apparently that was the end. Let me go in and make sure that with that typo I didn't have. Yeah, I think I put I got the well shoot, hold on. I think I copied the wrong. And I gotta find it. Do do do. Yeah, it was the last few verses and I don't know. Hold on, let me find them again. Let's see, two, three. Um Yes, you did. Very good. It says, Great guards are like the locusts, and your officials like the swarms of locusts, which settle on the walls on a cold day. But when the sun appears, they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. Your shepherds slumber, king of Assyria. Your nobles lie down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to gather them. There is no healing your wound, for your injury is fatal. All who hear the report of you clap their hands over you. For who hasn't felt your endless cruelty? Wow. Endless cruelty. Yeah. So, a little bit of joy on the part of those who hear about her destruction. And... That, you know, I was going to go and... I want to look that up real quick. I'm glad you asked that because I... No, I don't, I don't know that it's either. I want to, um, I want to look that up real quick. Hold on. Um, well, well, and it, I think that may be what it's saying is that your men are dead. All you have left to fight for you are going are women. Um, but I want to look and see what it actually has in the, at the Hebrew. Yeah, people are interested though, because, um, Jonah said, I mean, in the book of Jonah, did he say that they repented? So well, they went back to the old. Well, that's, yeah, if, if, that, if that did happen, um, oh, okay. then, then this, the one website I was looking at suggests that, that, be, that their, 
the punishment that Jonah prophesied is ultimately coming to pass, even though they got a reprieve by repenting. Um, so, you know, and that, and that is possible. I mean, like I said, I'm not, I, I would love to get, you know, get up there or get there and have, you know, sit down with, with uh, Jonah and go, so what really happened? My goodness, that's an intense story. <laughs> um, trying to find where was the verse about it being women um 13 verse 13 that's what it was as behold thy people in the midst of thee are women the gates of thy land shall be set wide open your physical your physical strength is or your strength the seat of your strength, or the seat of your thought and decision. Hmm. So yeah, I don't. I think that it. I think that it may just be a statement that your men, your men are gone, gone and and your uh, the women are the only ones there to defend you. Yeah. So, so I don't, I don't think it's an insult because God doesn't ever insult with, with the imagery of women. I mean, I can't think of of any time that that happens, and yet, see now they've got um, the, and this is what the uh, Strong's Concordance suggests. As a man is praised for valor, constancy, and intrepid mind, so woman is used as a term of reproach to a cowardly man, one who is timid and undecided. And they quote Nahum 3.13, but I just don't... I think that... To, I, have, I have trouble with the idea that God mocks people because that just doesn't fit his character. Um, so I, I'm curious. I'm, I'm going to look up the, the verses where they have that. Isaiah 19.16 is one of them. Um, and I'm really curious now. And this is, this is one of those examples, I think, of how... Because it says, In that day the Egyptians will be like women. They will tremble and fear because of the shaking of the Lord of hosts' hand, which he shakes over them. But even that, that doesn't sound mocking. Let me find this in here. But I think, and I think that the way you read that can most definitely affect your view of God and your view of women and your view of God's view of women. And I, so I think that that's just very interesting. Um... Shoot, Isaiah 1916. Go look that up real quick. So while we're while we're looking this up, Egypt shall be like unto women. Um, I'm gonna have to look more into that and how that's. I'm I'm gonna find some rabbinic notes on that because I find that very curious. Um, the one about the, um, the yeah, yeah, because it doesn't sound like he's mocking. It does sound like he was saying all their men are going to be dead. But just the other couple of verses where they're saying that that's how it's being taken, I just don't, I don't see that. Did you know, in my, um, on the, that last verse, 19, uh -huh. where he talked about the injury will be fatal. Uh-huh. Mine says your injury is fatal. Nineveh was a totally, was totally destroyed. That it would never rebuild. Right. Yeah. So that's like utter devastation. So even though there's still a city there, it's not filled with inhabitants from, you know, that that can trace their lineage back to Nineveh. Nineveh was destroyed. Completely. They never found no remnant of it. 
Yeah, it was it was absolutely. I mean, I'm sure there were people who were from Nineveh who'd gone to other places, and I'm sure people got out. So I'm sure there are people who who, if they could trace it back that far, probably come from there. But but like the modern day cities that are there, they were built in the same place, and they may carry on the same traditions because they were from that part of the world. But Assyria was taken out. Assyria was done away with. Um, and it was very common to rebuild, like to build on ruins because obviously a city was able to thrive there. You can, right. you know, it's a, it, it's a good place and you, there's some resources, you know, if they, if they did any plumbing or if they're, you know, you, you can go and kind of buy it as a fixer upper, I guess. You know? <laughs> um, so one of the things, what was the other thing I wanted to mention from the Torah portion or from the half Torah portion? Because the half Torah portion was from Isaiah, and I thought it was very interesting that it was Isaiah prophesying that God was going to do the very things that in the Torah portion they were warned were going to happen for the very reason they were told it would happen. And um, I just think it's a very... You know, so reading the prophets right now as we're doing that, and yet even in the even in the Haftarah portion, it was saying that that God, it, God was grieved that it had come to that. Mm-hmm. You know, He really, really did give so many opportunities, and 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 every time the prophets came, and every time they tried to warn them. So, you guys, did you have any thoughts about either anything we read last night or anything that was in the lesson today? No? Cain fell asleep. (laughs) (laughs) He's so tired lately. You did a very good job. <laughs> Fiona's like, you're hired. <laughs> and just in time for the kids to be losing it. So, yeah, we'll go ahead and close out, and I'll, I'll stop the bless or stop stop the recording with the blessing. But may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. Amen.